So if I spend my life worrying about a meaningless death, I'll never find joy? I literally just said that. Sorry. Thanks, Captain Sulu. I think I can live with that. Happy to help a fellow Starfleet officer looking for answers. Oh, great, awesome. So uh, can I ask you what it was like working with Spock and Uhura? Was it weird using the crystal buttons on the Enterprise? Oh, did you practice daily with a sword? I'm uh, kind of a sword guy myself, so. The horsey's going to bite you now. What? <laughs> Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the very cinematic bridge. This is Tyler Orton feeding the horsey. And we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, Crisis Point 2, Paradoxus. The sequel to, I think we would say, like one of the big episodes in the back catalog of Lower Decks. And Tyler, did this live up to the impact of the original? Uh, not quite for me. I think there's a lot bigger emotional core with regards to the first one. You're talking about Mariner's relationship with her mother, Freeman. And also just the first time you get to see like the holodeck used in such a fashion. Um, it was like nothing ever seen before. I would not put it quite on th this episode on quite the same tier, but I still think this is a very strong outing for this season of Lower Decks, despite the fact not the funniest episode, but yeah. still a, a fun episode to watch here. And I, I you know, a couple of big revelations, uh, of, of course, um, with, with the very brief return of one William Boimler, who I kind of would have expected to have, you know, returned to the show by now after his last appearance early in season two. Um, and I, I like the fact that he was introduced by mocking Section 31 for having com badges that are black and not all that indiscreet if you're supposed to be some sort of covert uh, part of Starfleet. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll get answers one day to that season one Discovery black badge in the hallway, right? <laughs> Will we? Like, no, like no. that's just it. Like, Section 31 was literally on discovery in episode three we saw them walking around and they never really acknowledged it ever again nope and we will do an episode i'm sure one time in the future about the you know abandoned threads of star trek i think that could be a lot of fun but yeah for me this one i enjoyed it i think more on a, like an animation and reference level than in terms of the humor because i i agree like this wasn't one of the more hilarious episodes of lower decks but I really do appreciate these ep these Crisis Point episodes in terms of what they can do with their animation style. And what I dug about this one is something that I think it's something of a fad now, but in the past was not something you would do, which is pay tribute or acknowledge your failures as a franchise. And I like that we had a lot of Star Trek V stuff and we had Cybok referenced on Strange New Worlds. This feels kind of of a piece with the trend with like Spider-Man No Way Home where you're acknowledging amazing Spider-Man movies which were terrible um and so I like that they are folding in movies you know from Star Trek that aren't necessarily the best loved because there's a lot of as I said Star Trek 5 stuff but there's also with the whole bike chase there's some you know kind of nods to uh Star Trek Nemesis so I dug that about it but I agree with you like the emotional core of this one I think the reason that Crisis Point 1 worked for me so well was because we've been tracking the sort of the emotional journey of Mariner 
Whereas this was an element introduced in this episode for Boimler to deal with that was ultimately undercut by the end of the episode. So it just kind of felt like a little too thin and not maybe as compelling as I would have liked. Well, I also wish that we had the return of William Boimler before this episode because I, I think that mm -hmm. would have created more of a dynamic and more of a conflict within Bradford had we, you know, met up with his duplicate once more. You know, so we're trying to like reach into our memory banks to recall, you know, what that dynamic was when we last left off more than a year ago with that particular character. Uh, first thing that came to my mind, if, you know, uh, William Boimler is quote unquote KIA, does that mean that uh, Bradford now gets that promotion that was taken away from him at hmm. the start of season two? Right. Like it would introduce some complications. That would be really interesting. Maybe, maybe we'll see that in the next episode. I had, yeah, like the same thought as you though. Like I was kind of straining to remember the dynamic. I mean, He's introduced. Uh, it's pretty quick with the step forward for the job, and then ultimately William Boimler gets the Titan job. But, like, we didn't spend a lot of time with those two characters. And I really did wonder, after this one was over, if they would have been smart to do maybe an episode earlier this season, perhaps. Um, something along the lines of The Enemy, the one with Geordi and the Romulan stranded on a planet, with the two Boimlers together. Because A, I think that would be really funny. I think um, Jack Quaid could do, I mean, it would be a showcase for him to play off himself, and I think he could do it. But it would also get a better sense of the dynamic and also give us more of a sense of William Boimler, the character, versus kind of the, the joke character from, you know, quite a while back. He probably had like a total of what, maybe 90 seconds of screen time? Yeah, that's about right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was a fun character while he was there, you know, just kind of the smarmy... Uh, yuck it up with the uh, senior officers sort of you know chap I, I i also wonder what eventually led him into section 31 like what is his interest in pursuing you know this line of work in starfleet you know these are some of the questions that i have uh, the next question i have is how soon before they acknowledge that he's in section 31 again and i wonder if there are some uh, threads left hanging with uh, Rutherford and that procedure that he underwent in which it seemed to imply there's some sort of nefarious, you know, Starfleet undertakings going on in, in which uh, Rutherford's memory was wiped. Um, do those threads, story threads, collide by the season finale in just a few weeks? Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of them colliding, um, which actually would be, I think, a far more exciting um, future happening than what I had predicted. I initially thought that it felt like the Rutherford stuff, you've got to pay off in some way by the end of the season. You just have to, I think. Whereas I thought like this Boimler thing might be backburnered until maybe next season. But I actually really love that idea of merging those two threads together into like, you know, a finale episode or something. Okay, well, speaking of threads, um, that's just coming out of nowhere now. Um, so we may... Tendi, as she was essentially a nurse, mm -hmm. and then she's suddenly a science officer, but we really haven't seen her doing that at all this season, and now she wants to be a captain. Um, this this character is somebody who I like, I find delightful, but I, I, I'm not following her career path whatsoever. It just seems to be like uh, random stuff at all times, and the writers are, are still trying to figure out what exactly is her utilitarian purpose with regards to being on the ship. I, I, I think she has Groot great utilitarian purpose within the dynamic in those uh, core four lower decks characters but again i just where are they going with this character ultimately 
Well, it's interesting. We kind of stumbled across this uh, a couple episodes or so ago where we kind of realized like they haven't really talked about uh, career trajectories for like anyone this season. Like we haven't seen them on the bridge much at all. Um, It hasn't really tied into the stories. It seems like there was almost like an issue maybe coming off season one where it felt like the characters, at least a number of the characters, were like on the verge of being promoted a little too quickly for season one. And it seems like this season, it's almost been like, keep everything career related just in the background. Let's just focus on character specific stories and let's not worry about that. But it does make it more frustrating when they're introducing, yeah, Tendi's like big promotion and then her talking about Captain Dreams. Like we haven't had an episode where Tendi, you know, went through this journey. It was entirely out of thin air. Like you never would have seen this coming. Yeah. And that's kind of the... the problem with just the conceit of the series you've got these core four characters if you want to go seven seasons are they going to be harry kim's you know travis mayweather's hoshi satos in in which they don't get promoted like for you know close to a decade you know that's kind of weird and these are we watch these characters when push comes to shove that they are good at their jobs so why is it that they remain, you know, perpetually lower decks? And that's why, you know, we, we touched on this, I think even going back to maybe season one, we kind of floated this idea. You know, this is a series that I think lends itself to, you know, let, let these characters be promoted. And then you bring in kind of the next group of lower decks and we can see, you know, uh, you know, Rutherford, Mariner, etc. Uh, we see them interacting with these new groups of ensigns while they're kind of middle management at that point. I think that would be a fun dynamic. It, you know, it mean the show wouldn't have to be static. You could have both kind of the lower deck stories, but like the crappy jobs. But then middle management's not so fun either. Well, I would love to see an episode where you had like Mariner and Boimler supervising new lower decks. And actually develop those characters over a span of time. I don't... Do you get the sense they're ever going to shake up the cast of this show? Well, the fact that they brought Shax back. I I, I can't quite pronounce uh, the actor's name. I'm going to mangle it, but Ed Tastasori. They did have a shout out to his name in this episode as one of the names of the systems that they uh, went out to. But the fact is, like, they... To me, I still think it's kind of cheap that they did bring Shax back, despite how fun that character is. Uh, I, I don't get the sense they are going to shake up the uh, the cast that much. I, I think they're very happy with who they have. And I, you know, if these are likable folks to work with, you know, it might be tough to say goodbye. And that also makes it tough to move the lower decks out, especially like if the show keeps making them more and more efficient, like at what point should they stop being lower decks? So is this more kind of a, uh, should this series be thought of more kind of like a King of the Hill? You know, you mm. you can have the show go on for like 10, 12 years, but uh, Bobby Hill is still always going to be like, I think Bobby Hill went from age 11, 12 to maybe 13 throughout the course of the series. Um, the best part was when his best friend Joseph went through puberty. And so oh, yeah. it's like half the episodes he had like kind of the uh the softer voice and the other half uh his voice uh was like very manly, you know. Um you know, so I don't know. Like like I just wonder if this is more of a show about like, hey, let's um be willing to go deep with our characters like we'd often see on The Simpsons, you know, when uh say Homer's mom comes back. But we aren't averse to just kind of keeping this kind of almost static in terms of where our characters are placed. 
Yeah, static is the word I was thinking of as well. And that it, to me, makes in some ways more sense to just keep the career stuff just in place. Uh, and I'd be curious, I, I, I'm not, so I, I haven't gone to Memory Alpha to look at the uh, the timeline of these episodes, but like, I would keep it to a very condensed period of time where it wouldn't be insane for them to not be promoted. Like, if they're lowered X over the span of like nine months to a year, I'm like, yeah, I, I believe this. Um, but it's like how MASH only had three Christmas episodes over the course of like 15 years because the Korean War only lasted three years. Exactly. Yeah. And the show MASH long outlasted, uh, the Korean War length. Yeah. And to your disappointment, (laughs) you wanted the Korean War to go on in perpetuity camp. Actually, you know, in all fairness, the Korean War technically is still going on. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. You got your wish camp. I guess so. I never knew. Um, <laughs> now, I, I, all I can hear is the MASH theme song playing in my head. Well, there's our end credits music for sure. But, like, no one watching MASH, I mean, MASH is regarded as, like, one of the greatest shows of all time. No one watching that show was like, boy, I really wish they'd hurry up because, you know, the Korean War would be over by now. It's Why like, isn't it... Hawkeye being promoted? <laughs> well, exactly. It's like, you can easily dance around those things. So just don't introduce those elements. But I think part of the problem with Lower Decks initially out of the gate was that it did introduce those elements. I think they've definitely made some efforts to slow down this season in particular. Yeah. I mean, Boimler is like, he was promoted within 10 episodes, the first 10 episodes. So I get that. Um, Kim, okay. Um, uh, you and I are very spoiler averse. You know, we, we don't go digging around for stuff. So uh, whatever theories we float out there, this is coming from our own brains. But just a couple of weeks ago, you floated the idea of a uh, a lower decks episode in which we get to revisit the Enterprise crew in the holodeck somehow, and you'd be making fun of the episode. These are the voyages, the series finale of Enterprise. We literally had a holodeck moment uh, here <laughs> in which we're at the signing of the Federation, in, in which that was depicted in These Are the Voyages in the holodeck, of course, on the Enterprise D. Um, how insane was it that, like, just a few weeks later, like, um, we actually saw this like unfold, albeit we didn't get to see any of the uh, old uh, uh, crew members that. Uh, and characters that are, are so adored by us. Yeah, like I couldn't quite do a victory dance because it's like <laughs> for me to do the full on victory dance, it has to be the whole Enterprise crew and like a total homage to these are the voyages. But I did kind of like smile when I saw that and thought, oh, okay, that's funny. I mean, it felt like in some ways this episode was a tribute to Star Trek's failures. Like there was nods to like Star Trek 4 with like the street punks and things like that. But like, you had nods to these are the voyages, Star Trek V, some nemesis in there. I thought it was a really interesting approach because the whole idea is that this version of Crisis Point doesn't measure up to the original, which was pretty heavy on like the Kelvinverse stuff and also Wrath of Khan. So I thought that was actually a really genius touch and also allowed them to introduce or reintroduce iconography from those movies. Okay, Cam, so this is the second time you've uh, brought up, you know, kind of Star Trek's uh, failures in, in film uh, format here without mentioning the shoutouts to the motion picture, which I know you, mm. uh, that, that, that's a beloved movie uh, on your behalf. I really like it. We are in the minority here. Um, many fans don't think it's a very good movie, but we have moments like uh, Boimler going into the God Rock, uh, which is another amazing shout out, and finding uh, the Wright Brothers airplane and, and he wipes it he wipes down the plaque to reveal kitty hawk and he's like that reveal doesn't make any sense you know like that was my biggest laugh that i got throughout the entire episode 
That was genius, actually. And yeah, like Star Trek The Motion Picture has had this reappraisal over the years. Um, but you're right, like at the time when it came out, it did not exactly blow a lot of Star Trek fans away. And over kind of like 20 years or so was not held up in the highest of regard. And so it's interesting that this episode really hammered down on that stuff. And like, I thought it was just fun as a way to, because the thing about like some of those movies, like the Star Trek V stuff, Star Trek V is like not great. But it has very memorable iconography with all of the stuff with Shakare. We didn't get a floating godhead, which disappointed me. But we did get the rock monster that, of course, William Shatner was so passionate about during the production of that movie. So, like, I just thought that was a lot of fun and a way to make these things kind of cool and funny in movies that, at least at times, they were very boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, we got a shout out to uh, Assassinating Kennedy, which was, uh, we, we've covered this in like the history of Star Trek films uh, before, or I think it was, I think our episode, and this would have been like, from, I don't know, six, seven years ago, it was like the Star Trek projects that never were. And this is a real idea, listeners. Um, I think Re- Gene Roddenberry pitched the idea that the crew would have to go back in time uh, and assassinate Kennedy. You know, I think... The intent there is like, what would be something analogous to the sort of conflict that Kirk had within him when he had to allow Edith Keeler to die? Mm-hmm. And I think for American audiences, like, no, Kirk, you can't assassinate Kennedy. Um, I think it's an incredibly stupid idea. Glad it never happened. I'm glad that they kind of mocked it here uh, in the opening moments of uh, this episode of Lower Decks. I believe, and I'm, I'm basing this off of uh, William Shatner's Movie Memories book, that like Roddenberry pitched this for like multiple movies, and okay. at that point, like he wasn't he wasn't the one making the movies, but he would approach them and be like, "This is what you guys need to be doing," and I think Harv Bennett and crew were just kind of like, "Oh yeah, um, no, we're gonna go in a in a different direction for now, but uh, we'll talk to you later." And so it yeah, never got made. Assassinate Lincoln instead. <laughs> but as I recall. It was actually going to be at the end of whatever that movie was. It was going to be Spock on the gra- on the grassy knoll um, taking the shot, which is crazy for a like beloved fan favorite character. Like, oh my goodness! <laughs> it explained why he had a magic bullet then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vulcan yeah. It was a. <laughs> it's one of those ideas though that like it sounds insane to say out loud, but then you think of like some of the other Star Trek stories, and if you were to just pitch that. In a vacuum, people would be like, that sounds crazy. So I'm sure like Roddenberry felt very confident about this. But when I hear this pitch, I immediately think of like an episode like the Omega Glory with like the Declaration of Independence stuff. And I go, ooh, ooh I think this would have been a rough movie. Uh, uh. <laughs> um, Kim, I liked how Rutherford was not taking this holodeck adventure seriously at all. It was like me uh, messing around on Goldeneye where um, I don't think um, it, it's... Uh, some sort of embodiment of whatever my internal struggles are of the day. And I like how, yeah, Rutherford, this is just to have fun. And I like that it was acknowledging the character popping in and out of the holodeck simulation. Like he would be coming back with food and chips and stuff like that. Yeah. Because like that would totally happen. Like don't tell me when they're using the holodeck. Like our man Bashir, for example, at some point someone doesn't have to go to the bathroom or something and duck out. So I like that they were acknowledging that how an, like a holodeck would actually work. I'm pretty sure there must have been a toilet inside of Vic's lounge, and I think uh, I, I'm glad I, I I was not on holodeck cleaning duty uh, on Deep Space Nine myself. You think they go to the bathroom in the holodeck program? Uh, 
I can believe it in that, like, I look, there's a lot that goes on inside of the <laughs> hollow suites in sure. uh, Quirk's bar specifically. <laughs> I have to believe that there's some sort of automated, like, cleaning um, program in there. But wouldn't you just be peeing on the floor? <laughs> well, it'd be in a, like some sort of like materialized, you know, lights and photons or lights sure. and force fields uh, to quote Chakotay uh, sort of thing. <laughs> And it would be contained within there until the program's over and uh, it could be disposed of. I was going to say, what happens when, it, like, you say program off? Then what? Is it just like this, like, splash as things are hitting the ground? <laughs> well, good thing you're not doing it on, like, the second floor of uh, some sort of, like, a Dixon Hill. I think Dixon Hill's office is on the second floor, right? No, I think it would, I think it's just, like, it's automatically... You can transport things in and out everywhere, right? I, I think this... This cleaning program is very effective. It, it can act in real time. <laughs> this is why Star Trek has never tackled... They did tackle the bathroom issue, didn't they? A little bit. Yes, nine. Uh, well, Jake mentioned it in the episode in uh, Explorers when they built that Bajoran ship. I think that was the first time that the word bathroom was ever mentioned on Star Trek. And then... Uh, yeah, they kind of touched on it, at least with the extensive nude scenes on Lower Decks, in which they're in the uh, sonic showers together, too. Yeah, and but we've never seen anything in, like, you know, say, like, the captain's quarters or anything. There's never been, like, a, a doorway that leads to nowhere that we actually see. Well, we did see uh, on uh, Discovery, remember, like, uh, there's definitely a, a bathroom inside Culber and uh, Stamets's, uh place in which they're brushing their teeth. Um, mm -hmm. I think we saw a toilet in there. Like, if you watch the TNG episodes, they have their bathrooms in their quarters, but I don't think, I don't think I actually see any toilets themselves. Right. Like, that doesn't shock me. Like, it's not particularly necessary, likely, within an episode of Star Trek to be showing them. But, uh, yeah, I feel like the, um, the holodeck one, it, it, it raises a lot of questions. And I feel okay. like this episode yeah. <laughs> probably, in some ways, answered them yeah, without actually enough, acknowledging bathrooms. Okay. Yeah. Um, I also like the uh, the two folds of skin that kind of folded together like a mad magazine. Um, that, uh, mm -hmm. that, that made me chat call. And also, Cam, uh, yet again, another dig at uh, Star Trek Discovery when uh, Boimler and Mariner started proclaiming, we are Starfleet. Yeah, we're effing Starfleet. And I thought that was uh, yep. great uh, coming from one of the most mockable lines we've ever heard in Star Trek history from the season one finale, Will You Take My Hand, uh, Star Trek Discovery. Also a bit of a dig at the Kelvinverse uh, about alternate timelines and younger actors playing them, which I actually think could be a really funny crisis point part three is to just have entirely new like voice cast play younger versions of the characters that that could actually work yeah um it, it was also nice uh just seeing kind of images of and, and you alluded to it but the kind of images of the you know enterprise d and the original or was it the refit uh enterprise uh that we saw in that kind of uh wrath of khan uh kind of throwback there hmm i wasn't exactly sure I think it was the refit Enterprise. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you think of seeing uh, a Sovereign class ship on screens uh, once again? I mean, this show can really showcase these ships. And, like, that's been one of our frustrations with some of the other live-action shows is that often the ships look kind of glowing or they're under-designed in, like, the case of, you know, the Picard finale. But, like, Lower Decks gets to showcase them in really dynamic ways, and they look beautiful. So I... I 
it really is like a, I think, a very strong argument as to why it's kind of insane that Star Trek hasn't been embracing animation for like a while. And I remember, you know, there was buzz about an animated show back in like 2009, but it's like, that really is a great place for Star Trek because you can just do so much in terms of your ships. I thought it looked beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I, do we get the return of a sovereign class ship at some point uh, in live action Star Trek? I, we didn't really touch on it. I think we kind of messed up uh, last week, but uh, we did see glimpses of the uh, Enterprise F in the Star Trek Picard season three trailer. It's definitely not a sovereign class ship though, but it is kind of a similar design and it kind of bugged me in that, like, they keep making these Starfleet vessels more and more aerodynamic, whereas I'd really love them to make things just more of those kind of classic saucer-shaped, you know? Like, it, it, it's space. Aerodynamics aren't <laughs> really a factor in outer space. And I think those saucer shapes, or even, like, spherical shapes, too, um, it's just this wonderful kind of classic design that have aged quite well. Whereas I look at the Sovereign-class ship, and I'm like, yep, that's something that was definitely designed in, like, the mid-1990s. You know, same with uh, the Intrepid-class Voyager. Sure, yeah. Do you think it's possible to create an iconic ship for Picard and crew that could ever really work as well like the enterprise d has such a life because of the tv show and everything the enterprise e was fine like i i don't have strong emotional attachment to it and now we're going to get the enterprise f do you think it's possible to create any design that is really going to stick in people's minds i really like the design of the titan a in which this seems to be where the uh, uh tng crew will be based out of for most of the season at least that's my understanding based on interviews and i think it is like a, a pretty good design and it, it like it more taking from those kind of classical design elements uh especially from kind of the movie era uh, the tos movie era rather than making the tight titan as aerodynamic as possible Hmm. yeah yeah, the Titan does look reasonably decent, and I actually thought like Stargazer was kind of interesting on yep. you know the the first episode of Picard season two. So like, I think it's possible to create something that looks cool, but I do wonder with like the time factor and that you are not spending that much time with these ships whether it's really possible to make one that you know if you reference it in ten years like this episode does with some of its past elements of Star Trek that it's really going to elicit like a, a strong response from people. Well, it's also you know great to see a Defiant class ship make an appearance mm-hmm. here. You know that's something that really pops out on screen, and it, it's kind of a mix of that aerodynamic look while also kind of a classical um, design look. In which like the Defiant has kind of a sharp nose, but it's got like kind of that spherical sort of like a body to it, and uh, that's a ship design. I think that it has aged quite well in kind yeah. of that crossover era, you know, and so um, I'm a big fan of that. I also got a good laugh. Like we find William Boimler, of course, he's been shot out into outer space in one of those torpedoes that must be 150 years old now, uh, or at least the design is. But uh, that was just a fun little moment. But I just kept picturing him. How long was he floating in that uh, that photon torpedo shell? No kidding, no kidding. I I thought that was very funny. Also, another actually acknowledgement of Star Trek's past, uh, perhaps, failures. Um, we had the three uh, Romulan sisters, which was kind of a nod to Lursa and Bator, of course, from Star Trek Generations, which not necessarily the most confident put forward for the TNG crew on the big screen either. Uh, and for some reason, they had to showcase those Romulan sisters' cleavage, much like they did with Lursa and Bator. Um for some reason. I, I, I don't quite know why. 
I think it was to get the reference across mostly, right? Uh, Cam, uh, I reference perceived here. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've got it. Okay. Um, do we do we want to jump over to some really silly chatter going on in the, in the Star Trek universe with regards to the future of the film franchise? Silly chatter. That sounds like our bag for sure. Okay. Uh, so, Cam, this is just, it's got some people talking and it's got my eyeballs rolling. But essentially, there is a, a tweet went out uh, from one of the official Star Trek uh, accounts and it says... This is Star Trek on Paramount Plus, the verified account. It's a link to the season three Picard trailer, and and the tweet only says the final voyage. Period. And then <laughs> Freaks uh, quote tweets that, and he says maybe not. And then of course we've got some of the comments made during the uh, Star Trek New York Comic Con appearance. There, uh, you know, listeners, why don't you just give it a listen? You know, just in case it's possible. Uh, well, I know there are some Paramount Plus people here today, uh, also from Paramount Pictures. We could still make a movie. Listeners, they are not putting these geriatric, wonderful, wonderful performers headlining a blockbuster $200 million action film in that December 2023 time slot that was originally set out for the uh, crew of the Kelvinverse, which would have been headlined by uh, big stars like Chris Pine, Zoe Saldana, etc., Carl Urban. I, I, I love these actors to death. They are wonderful. I think um, the most we could ever hope for, and I don't think it's out of the question, but maybe Paramount Plus is like, hey, why don't we do a 90-minute, two-hour sort of um, direct-to-Paramount Plus TNG movie? Like, give them one last final movie after season three of Picard. That That's the most I think we're ever going to get out of it. But I'm just, it got people real excited. I just, I, I, I won't dig too deeply into these comments being made by these actors here. No, and I mean, I don't really understand what they're talking about because they're talking about Paramount Plus people being there. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh, I could see them making like a maybe a two hour Paramount Plus movie with this cast. Uh, that's not like insane to me. But then they're talking about like the slot for like Star Trek four, which is an entirely different thing. So I get it like i'm sure paramount does want to figure out a star trek movie although not that badly they're not that consumed with figuring it out it seems um but this there's also like the case that like it's the age-old thing actors are kind of the last people to know anything about a project so the idea that like this cast would have inside knowledge on a star trek movie that's going to be made soon or something like that is just not the case it's rather silly, but it's also like, if it was the case, why are the actors kind of chattering about this before season three Picard even premieres? You know, like, like you want to like, aren't you kind of like undercutting maybe the stakes of what might unfold 
next season if you're already saying or heavily implying to fans out there like we're gonna be back again yeah and also like you're also not trusting you're not putting a lot of faith i think in your season three picard to kind of tell any sort of like wrap-up story for that crew either if you're just like oh we can do a movie as well like often cases and I, this isn't the first time i've heard this where it's like this you know paramount is very much promoting this as the final voyage which perhaps the you know i don't know if terry metallis intended that i don't know if other people associated with picard really intended that sometimes it's more of a marketing hook i think of course of most recently with uh colin trevorrow saying that he never approved the uh jurassic world dominion is the final jurassic world <laughs> um but it, it, it does like kind of raise questions as to like why not let Picard season three stand hit the you know the convention circuit after that season's out and then like boy did you guys love that would you like to see a movie yay hear that paramount you know like wh why not just do it as more of a victory lap thing than like a it almost sounds like they're not confident in this season well it's it also makes me feel less confident about this season like do you know how i'd love to see the finale uh, of the season like, i'd like to see almost a moment uh, akin to what we left behind in uh or sorry what you leave behind in that it's almost kind of flashbacks to these characters with uh you know this music swelling it's such easy sort of emotional beats to hit but it's very effective you know it'd be amazing to see you know um you know that <laughs> Uh, like Riker meeting Data, you know, in the holodeck in Encounter at Farpoint, like just that moment on screen for, you know, uh, you know, a, a quarter second and then seeing where Riker is now, you know, um, you know, big, big beardy now to, you know, baby face Riker back then. Even just those kind of moments with music swelling. Like, I want there to be like this closure. And when I hear the cast, you know, talking about like, ooh, there's maybe more to come. I'm just like, oh, so that makes me feel as if there's not going to be some sort of closure to this crew. And I, I'm I'm okay with like, I don't know, maybe Worf gets a spinoff or Jordy pops up as Commandant of Starfleet Academy for some other spinoff series down the road. I'm okay with that sort of stuff. But for this crew, I want this to be the final voyage and that you're going to have 10 hours. You can take your time. Whereas like... I, the, the the track record of the movies, uh, Star Trek has a very, very spotty track record, and I don't trust it to wrap things up for the crew so nicely in a two-hour film. No, especially when you look at the track record of the TNG movies. I would suspect this largely comes from just that cast, who are very close, it seems, in real life, just had an amazing time working together on Picard Season 3. And so, of course, they want to float a movie because they all want to work together again. Yeah. But... Um, that's, that's, I think the answer based in reality as to what this is all about, but like, let's just say for example, that like, this is going to be a thing that like behind the scenes, there's talk about a movie and you know, Picard, the series Picard ends after this next season. And then we get like a movie or two. Um, if that is the, the future, what was the series of Star Trek Picard? I don't know. Cam. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody has an answer. You know, because it, it, it's so easy to see when when you watch that that first season that they really didn't have a uh, sort of, like they they didn't plan out anything in sort of broad strokes. You know, and, and I am not one of those television viewers that demands that that uh, these odd tour 
like uh, showrunners have everything planned out. But I think oftentimes showrunners have broad strokes in mind, at least when a season go- starts to when it ends, about where they want to take these characters. And it's very clear that none of that was outlined in those first... Uh, certainly season one of Picard. Season two, maybe, but a lot of it is just filler, you know? So it's just like there, there's never like this kind of strong voice guiding Picard, uh, the series, since it started. No, and I it turned into, when all was said and done and say these movies happened, uh, or movie, it would be like this was just like the... Picard gets his groove back, but they also <laughs> put him in an artificial funk to pull him out of that for three yeah. seasons. Yeah. Like, that's kind of lame. Like, what was the point of that? It's like you're almost devaluing the TV show that you are currently promoting. I know. I know. It, it all just seems so inorganic. You know, from episode one of Picard, this entire series has come off as incredibly inorganic. I mean, I guess switching showrunners every season will do that for sure. Well, like, I don't know if that's the folly of the series overall. I just, I, I think they pitched Patrick Stewart something. They ultimately found themselves in a corner creatively, and they realized that it wasn't working whatever they had originally pitched him. And then from what I understand, they had to rewrite those final eight episodes on the fly, pretty much. Yeah. And so there was just no direction for the show. And, um, you know, uh... Michael Chabon, like, he had the opportunity to uh, adapt um, one of his uh, own, uh, you know, favorite things. I, I forgot what it was, uh, but he had the opportunity. Uh, caviar and Clay? Is that what it was? I'll take your word for it. But um, he had the opportunity to do something which would have other occupied his time in, in season two of Picard. And he went off and did that. And honestly, just based on the output, and, and this is like a renowned, like, uh, writer. And I really did like his Netflix series, um that he uh, and his wife uh, were showrunners for. And um, so I just, you know, give some new life to the show. But then when you have, like, uh, it, it was um, Akiva Goldsman essentially serving as a showrunner for season two. It was a terrible season. Like, just, I, I don't know how you... Look, Kim, if their goal was to save their budget in season two for season three, so you could go all out with the space stuff, what they really should have done is just have every single episode of season two be like a on the ship, like on the stargazer as a bottle episode. I don't need to see like big, you know, uh, special effects every single episode, you know, just make them all bot- uh, bottle episodes where people are talking. You're doing like uh, interpersonal dynamics, you know, that's attention. That's, you know, where the conflict is coming from rather than like pew, pew, pew sort of stuff. You know, I just think they just misfired again and again with this series. And again, like I just... It, it it keeps happening, but like I am now excited for season three, um, but I'm very wary of season three. But I, I would say that Terry Metalis has been very good at, at, at telling me everything I want to hear, and he has a certain Star Trek pedigree that goes back, uh, you know, twenty years, twenty five years almost. So I have some hope, but I'm not holding out for this show, this series to really thread the needle by the time we get to the end. In retrospect, though, it kind of, I mean, it makes perfect sense as to why Picard has been in many ways the most compromised show. Uh, Discovery has a lot of problems as well, but I would say, like, it more or less holds together tonally. Like, there's definitely a shift between season two and three of Discovery, but, like, Picard feels really all over the place. And I just think it's, like, 
you know, say you went into uh, Paramount and were like, hey, I want to make a show, Jake Sisko Reporter in the Star Trek universe. And, you know, they're giving out shows to everyone. They're like, uh, okay, sure. No one has strong opinions. They're kind of like, okay, I don't really understand how this is going to be a weekly show, but he seems to have a vision. Okay. If you go in and say, I want to do the continuing adventures of Jean-Luc Picard post-TNG, everyone wants to get involved in that. Everyone has very strong opinions about it. And I think, you know, you look at the exec producers on Picard, it was like a magnet for them. Also with Discovery as well, which makes sense because it was, you know, the the first show to come out of CBS All Access. But Picard, just that character alone, it just was, I think, too much of a, uh, just a magnet for everyone wanting to be involved in it. Well, I also think the big problem, and I, ha- I hate to tell people this, but is the fact that Patrick Stewart was also an executive producer and that he had a lot of creative input in this show and where he wanted to take the character, or at least where he wanted to start with the character. And the problem was, I, I understand why as an actor, you don't want to keep playing the same person for 30 straight years without any sort of development. But we, we find this character as someone we we don't even really recognize as the same person from 30 years ago. And, and, and so why why is anybody invested in, what, what? Let's, let's be honest, for two straight seasons, we've been watching a doddering old man with very little command or, or gravity when he's in any given room, you know? And I'm just like, ugh. Like, it, it's not the same person I remember. And, and, it, and it, does, it doesn't make for a very compelling character either as your lead. It's why I think Lower Decks and um, Prodigy have worked out really well was because they're, you know, animation and the people running those shows really know that world. I think like, you know, the the people, the many producers and whatever associated with the franchise are kind of like, I, I don't really know that world. You guys handle it. And that's what actually makes me quite nervous about season two of Strange New Worlds because Strange New Worlds really got a lot of buzz off that first season. And suddenly it feels like when that sort of thing happens, other people want to get involved because now they have a vision of what, you know, Strange New Worlds should be in season two. So I'm very hopeful that that's not the case because I don't want that show to wind up being all over the place like, you know, Picard and Discovery. Well, I mean, they had the scripts, I I believe almost all of them in the can by the time season one had premiered. It was getting that buzz and I believe it was already like well into filming too so i'm not too concerned about what season two may bring and it may depend okay. and and season three could be safe too just because of um the reaction to season two and people are like okay you're, you're on the right path here but that's great but um uh, r- rumor has it uh part of the reason why uh season one turned out so great is uh alex kurtzman was very 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 busy uh with regards to his duties on the man who fell to earth also another paramount plus show and just did not have time to stick his fingers into Strange New World Season 1. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. One little thing from Discovery. uh, Alex Kurtzman, just over the past week, he did come out and he said that there would be a bit of a tonal shift in Season 5, and and he's saying that we want to make the show fun, you know, and uh, Seasons 3 and 4 were a little heavy. We want to make the show fun. Cam, remember that's what they're saying going into Season 2, and maybe Episode 1, Brother, um, yeah, sure. I can see that tonal shift there. But by the time you're getting to the Red Angel stuff, and remember that episode? I think it was literally called Red Angel, and it's like they're exposing Burnham to enough radiation that she's literally, like, her heart's stopping and she's dead, and her skin's practically melting off. And I'm just like, yeah, 
I don't know if I describe this as like a fun season of Star Trek, despite there's some occasionally fun elements in there, you know, like the, uh, but even like uh, if memory serves, you know, think about that um, opening sequence there, you know, the, the throwback to the kind of the 60s uh, look there. Um, it's still kind of a heavy episode. Yeah. Is that the one where, uh, or is it maybe the episode after that one or something where Pike sees like, you know, the future Pike where he's like, his face is melting off and stuff like that. Like, these aren't really the images of a quote-unquote fun show. Um, yeah. I, I do think, like, Discovery, they're aware that, that that show has, like, zero buzz on those, like, last <laughs> couple seasons. They know. Yeah. You know, they may be happy with the quality. I have no idea. But, like, they recognize that people aren't really talking about Discovery. Um, so, like, I, I do think embracing, like, kind of the fun aspect, and I'm sure there's a little bit of Strange New Worlds <laughs> effect there where they're like, huh, people really like Star Trek being fun. That's odd. Um, <laughs> I think you can have it both ways where you can have kind of the gravitas that uh, Discovery sometimes strives for with the fun, but it's going to depend on execution, and Discovery's writing has been really, really wonky uh, the yeah. last couple seasons. So, you know, you can't just hit me with a bunch of action scenes and Burnham saying things like, let's fly. And I'm going to go, that's fun. It's like, you have to have something to support that. Oh, yeah. I, I kept thinking about like our, our experience, these uh, two seasons of Discovery seasons, uh, season four of Discovery, season two of Picard, in which I had a lot of fun podcasting about season two of Picard because that show is just so terribly written and just yeah. absolutely deranged. I didn't really have much fun like watching these episodes of Discovery because I was just so bored out of my mind. The episodes dragged; they're really heavy. I was like, okay, like you just like I I don't really have much to say about that. Whereas I I have a lot to say about how deranged season two of Picard was. Yeah, I mean, like we had a lot of fun doing the first couple seasons of Discovery where there was a lot to talk about in those episodes. Like, they gave you a lot of fodder for discussion, both good and bad, but, like, there was a lot there. And those episodes, like, starting in three, but really, really taking over in four, it's like we'd watch these episodes, and I would be looking at my notes going, like, like this whole episode is mostly exposition. Like, what am I going to talk about? Like, it didn't yeah. introduce interesting canon elements. It didn't take the characters in particularly significant, you know, pathways or anything like that it was just very frustrating and so look while i was very very just shattered by the experience of discovery season three and four if discovery season five turns out really fun that would be amazing because i do think like it's funny because like you watch the show discovery and then you go to a convention and see that cast and like the cast is really fun a lot of them are like, you know, great sense of humor. They have good comedic timing. And none of that is utilized really on Star Trek Discovery, especially in season four. So like, why not play to some of their strengths? That would be uh, something I would very much appreciate. So what you're talking about, Cam, you want more dancing on the show. Uh, yes, obviously. Um, I think also some Dungeons and Dragons because I believe, uh, you know, they like playing that at the conventions as well. So, yeah, those two things. Okay. Well, that would be a great holodeck episode there. Um, Cam, shall we talk about uh, Andor, a.k.a. what we call Cam Dort? Yes, the latest episode, episode six, The Eye. Uh, I would have to say, uh, just flat out, this is exceptional filmmaking. Uh, uh -huh. This is how you do a caper episode. 
I think this is far away the strongest episode of Andor, and it, it kind of like um, I can plop anyone into this episode. It doesn't matter if they've not seen anything that came before this, and somebody would just watch this episode and enjoy what they're seeing, feel engaged with what's going on. They know what the stakes are. They don't have to understand the actual mechanics of this caper, which I, I didn't quite understand myself, but I was mm. gripped by what was unfolding down to the directing, the editing, even the music creating the tension here. You have this amazing caper episode and you actually cap it off with something that speaks to Andor's character what he wants, what his motivation is. This is what you're supposed to be doing in storytelling. We've had um, a lot of problems and a lot of frustrations uh, with this uh, series, uh, you know, the, the last couple weeks. Um, I did like the previous episode. I, I think the show is kind of building upwards to something. Um, I, if the question is, what does it all add up to into the end? I, I'm still scratching my head about that. But I think that the eye... Um, we're at the halfway point. I think the eye is doing it for me. Yeah, it's it's funny because I was so negative on last week's episode. And this episode, just in terms of like spectacle and filmmaking, was unbelievable. I don't know off the top of my head of, you know, because we cover, uh, you watch a lot more TV than I do. But I'm thinking in in terms of like Star Trek in terms of the other Star Wars shows we've watched or, you know, the Marvel shows, things like that. I don't think I've seen anything on the level of what was achieved um, as a, like, you know, action sequence in this episode of Andor. It was really unbelievable. And frankly, more big screen worthy than a lot of the movies we see on the big screen. Like, I was that impressed. And I think Susanna White is probably going to be snapped up to direct something um, post-Andor, I would have to imagine. I think she... Um, Oh, am I getting her mixed up with, uh, is it Susanna Beers? Uh, like, who is in talks about, like, uh, being, like, a Bond director a couple, maybe, like, four or five years ago? That was Beers. Okay, yeah. But, uh, yeah, th this is, Cam, th this is great. And, and I, I agree with you, like, um, and I, I would say I, I'm genuinely, generally not impressed by a lot of the big blockbuster movie action sequences there you know like stuff in like uh say top gun maverick blew me away but most of the time i'm just watching that stuff and i'm like wow yeah you built something in a computer that's that's you know like I, i'm not blown away by that and here it, it's just stuff about being able to understand the geography even if you don't understand the uh, you're kind of understanding the mechanics of this mission as they unfold and that puts the viewer in an even more kind of tense, uncomfortable situation, which you're kind of, it feels like you're catching up to everything as it unfolds here. And, and I don't, you're, you're even establishing kind of the antagonist, the guy you can't quite fit his stash on, <laughs> but you're establishing him as somebody with motivations as well. Like he wants to get off this crummy planet. He's got a wife, he's got a kid. He knows that they're being held hostage. He has to go along with this, you know? And it, 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 you're, you're creating these characters in just a matter of moments. And it's characters that they understand what the stakes are. You understand what their motivation is. This is what filmmaking is supposed to be here. And even like that um, one, like no name, like sort of like private who kind of got stuck on the uh, the transport ship for a split second trying to shoot at and or at least try to tackle him off of the uh, the flight control panel. You understand what's going on in his thinking there. You know, um, even just like the uh, the commandant's realization that is the the uh, the lieutenant or lieutenant um, who was kind of the traitor the whole time. That sort of stuff. It's just, it just like, 
this is why I, I, I can be gripped by filmmaking um, a, a, as it is right here. And so yeah, we've, we've had problems with Andor leading up to it. I'm willing to forget it all. I'm willing to forgive all of it just because we get an episode such as The Eye. Well, it's funny because like I saw a quote from Tony Gilroy basically saying he considered Andor like a series of films. And that seems to be definitely the uh, <laughs> the the format we saw because we saw that with the first batch they released, it was the first three episodes, which I remember commenting when we reviewed those three episodes. Boy, it's a good thing they released those as a three because you had the build up and then the climax, you know, with over the course of those three episodes. And that was really my frustration with this series of three episodes. I thought this episode was fantastic. But I would like to have honestly watched the three of them all together because this felt like it would have been a much more compelling movie to me than a show that I'm watching week to week. I felt like I was just kind of like having these kind of stalls when leading into this, I think it would have been that much more effective. Well, do you think that... Um... Okay. I, I, like, I'm wondering because, like, do you think that your experience watching this episode would have been amplified even more had you watched the previous two uh, immediately before. Do, do you think that took away or, from anything, or do you think that um, your reaction to this episode would have been about the same had you seen the previous two, uh, you know, the, the preceding two hours before this one premiered? I don't know that this episode would have been hugely impacted, but I think the previous two would have right. been. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's like if I were sitting there, you know, I had a two hour whatever block to sit on my couch and watch those three episodes in a row, I think I would walk away much more um like kind towards especially episode two, because it felt like the startup, you know, at the episode four, and then just, you know, a week lag, and then the middle part lag, and then this. And the fact that I mean it really speaks to me about how fantastically well done this episode was achieved in that even with that frustration of kind of the delivery method of Andor for me this episode just operated like gangbusters I just I really think like when I rewatch this show I'm gonna just watch it in three episode chunks not this you know break it up this much okay so next week I will be the only one doing Cam Dort <laughs> same with the week after that but uh, three weeks from now three weeks from now we'll, we'll return to the usual Cam Dort f format right uh, well, of course, of course, yes. Um, it does, like, it's probably not economical to do it this way because they want to release it as a TV show. But I do think, like, a series of, like, four and or movies would have been pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and, you know they could have done it, like, uh, every quarter, you know? Yeah, like, do it, like, the way that um, Sherlock was done, um, you know, in the UK, where I believe those episodes were, like, you know, TV movies. Like, they were close to two hours or something like that. I would have totally, I think, appreciated that for Andor. And I think just in terms of like, you know, this is just the first time through. Like I would have to suspect in the future I'll regard Andor differently because I have the whole thing at my fingertips. But like as a week-to-week -week experience, I think watching them as movies, I would have had a lot more enthusiasm for the final product than I think I did um, doing it this way. And I want to add this. I'm not apologizing at all for my previous you know, uh, opinions of the show. Like, I don't think the show works um, on a week-to-week -week basis at least, you know, um, five times out of six, you know? Like, I, mm -hmm. I, I liked the previous episode um, a, a lot more. I, th I thought it was a big improvement. But um, I just... I This show is, yet again, you know, kind of a, a, 
a movie maker saying like, I'm going to make a 12 hour movie, not really understanding what the format of television can offer people when they just accept it for what it is, you know? And I, I think there would have been a way to do and or leading up to this, you know, week to week in which it would have been a more satisfying experience if you can almost contain the episodes in a better way than what you've done uh, so far. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because we've had now four Star Wars shows. I would say uh, Mandalorian worked week to week just fine. Book of Boba Fett, quality aside, worked just fine week to week. Um, Obi-Wan did not really for me. Um, and I would say that this one hasn't really either in that format. So I'll be curious, you know, the future of Star Wars, if they go back to more episodic outside of the Mandalorian, obviously, or if we are going to continue more down this kind of uh, track. Uh, what's the next Star Wars series coming up? Um, oh, I mean, I, I, I know Mando is coming back. I believe it's yeah. early 2023. Do we know? I think a... I think Ahsoka is next, I uh, think. Okay, okay. My guess is, like, that spinoff show will be more in the vein of Mando. Yeah. I would guess, yeah. That seems to make sense. Okay, so that's going to be called Camp Shortcore? Short Shorten? <laughs> Camp Shorten? There's the other one, which the name is completely blanking with me. Oh, The Acolyte. That, I thought uh, that was a movie. No, that is no? a TV okay. show. And it's kind of like shrouded in secrecy because it's not within a familiar timeline, or at least in terms of what we've seen on screen. They haven't revealed anything about characters. Uh, so I don't know what to expect from that one, whether it is going to be more of a, you know, 10-hour movie approach or if it's an episodic show we're going to follow for like three or four seasons. Well, I just think it's so bizarre that Star Wars seems to be obsessed with this very small 30-year period Whereas yeah. Star Trek is literally a series that's taken place over the course of a thousand years. And, you know, just a small amount of time take, took place, you know, the uh, the uh, 22nd century. And a, a small amount of time took place, has taken place in the 31st century. But you have a lot of time taking place, you know, just between the, uh, the you know, 2300s, 2400s, you know. And so, I, 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 but do you think, okay, if the Acolyte isn't like a, a, a different time period, do you think it it feels that like the technology feels all that different though? Well, there was a pretty big technology difference between uh, the prequels and the original trilogy in terms of like just visualizing those worlds. Uh-huh. So I, I don't. My suspicion is it's going to have a different visual stamp just to separate it, so it could look quite different. Yeah, I think it. I think they s said it was like during the High Republic or something like that. So it might be a little more kind of glitzy looking than kind of the domesticated universe of okay. more of the Mandalorian and stuff and, and this show. Oh, see, now I was wondering if it'd feel like jumping from the Enterprise D onto the Bajoran uh, ship from Explorers. <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, there was also just a moment in this that I thought was a home run moment. And it was Stellan Skarsgård breaking into a smile at the end of this episode. <laughs> Absolutely perfect character moment. You didn't need exposition. You didn't need much at all. And like, what a home run ending. And it was just like quiet and small. But it's the sort of thing that like a lot of storytellers are really scared to do. Yeah. Oh, and another thing I, I want to bring up is uh, Eben Moss, uh, is it 
yeah, Eben Moss Backrick, I think is his name. Um, that character, mm-hmm. I was wondering. And I like it when you kind of have to wonder, uh, you know, kind of character motivations, at, at least for the first couple beats of that conversation that he and Ander were having at the very end, in which he was suggesting that uh, they take the money and run. And I was just wondering in my head, if was he just testing Andor, or was he serious about that? And I, I, I don't think they meant to leave it ambiguous. I don't think it was ambiguous. I, I, I think Evan's character was meant to be kind of creep. Like a jerk, yeah. You know, I, I believe that's what is ultimately going on there. But it was interesting, just kind of. Um, I, I, again, it was one of those questions like, what motivates our characters? You know, and I, I think that's always a question that I, um, I, I'm always wondering when I'm watching any given movie or TV show. Yeah, and I think it is kind of interesting how this show kind of reboots its characters every three episodes. Because remember when we were following like that couple who were like, I don't even remember what they were up to, but like in the first three episodes, and now it seems like we, well, killed off a fair chunk of characters in this episode as well. So it really makes me curious as to what characters will be introduced in the next three episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope that doctor with four arms comes back. Uh, he, he looked pretty awesome. Um, oh, and I just I need to give a shout out. The sequence in which the transport ship is being chased by the TIE fighters and they're trying to mm. beat the uh, the eye light show. Ah, oh, that was just chef's kiss. Amazing. And just even how the visual effects looked. Like, they weren't these stylized, like, um, you know, looking at, like, uh, Starfighter sort of, like, crappy VFX from, like, the uh, 1990s sort of deal. Like, it looked like you were there. And you felt the tension, you know, even when kind of the uh, the young kid was saying, you know, you have to lift now. You have to lift now. And he's look and Andor's looking up, and he's like, are we going to make it here? You know, like, th- that to me was just beautiful. Compare that to what you feel would be the best visual sequence of... Uh, Rise of the Skywalker, like there's no comparison. Was it the revelation of um apparently um fifteen million like star destroyers like uh just flashing uh with, with lightning around them? I guess like I think the the best kind of shot moment is the lightsaber fight on like the wreckage, but like in terms of effect sequences, I don't know. Like I feel like the kind of the big scale stuff in that movie is pretty poorly handled and i watched this and i'm like it, it's almost like it's almost an insult you got to watch this sequence on your tv at home this should have been like a big screen experience watching this escape sequence okay cam um next summer when they inevitably put uh andor into theaters for one day and we get to watch all 12 episodes in a row we can look <laughs> forward to that Okay, well, until then, I think our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. We will, of course, be back next week with the penultimate episode of Lower Decks Season 3. Tyler, can you believe we're here already? Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I answered your question. <laughs> okay, you can of course find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in Vindicta Smith. Uh you can find me at Reportin. That's R E P O R T T is in two folds of skin O N. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.
Transfer complete. 